Welcome to the social welfare portion of microeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Eland coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So when we think about social welfare, there's a few things that we can think about to start visualizing this whole concept. Part of it will be easy to understand, which deals with producer surplus, also known as profits. But what is more complicated to understand is the whole idea of consumer surplus. Uh, So let's just kind of step back for a second and try to see what's going on here. So let's say you were uh, a dictator, like who could choose anything you want for a country. And if you are a dictator, you could be a dictator that's focused on yourself, but you could also be seen as what we call a benevolent dictator, someone who's actually there in power, yes, but is doing all it can to help out the population. Well, if you're in that scenario, you want to make sure that people are as happy as possible. And if you're a prime minister, hopefully you have the same objectives. You're not just trying to enrich yourself, but you're actually trying to do what's best for the population. So to understand that whole idea, you have to wonder, well, what does the population actually like? What uh, what kind of situation uh, can we think about to, to try to determine like people's satisfaction levels? Well, in Quebec, Hydro-Quebec is government-owned. So the government has power through Hydro-Quebec in a certain way, even though it's a separate entity. Uh, While the managers at Hydro-Quebec have the power to change the price of electricity. It's government-owned and so on. Well, in that situation, you could think that if they wanted to, they could increase the price up to the point where people are willing to pay for it, that uh, people would still consume and so on and so forth. But if the prices for electricity were double or triple in Quebec, it would be similar to other parts of the world where electricity is quite a lot more expensive, but the people in Quebec would not be as happy. So social welfare and consumer surplus more specifically actually try to measure that level of happiness associated to a purchase. Another way to kind of visualize it is Imagine that you've gone to the shopping center or you're buying online, you're buying different products. And sometimes you might buy different products. And for some reason, one piece of clothing brings you minor satisfaction and another one gives you a lot of satisfaction. Sometimes that might be based on the idea that you prefer this product over this other one, but it could have also been the opposite. If ever you were shopping for boots or something else and you set aside in your mind that you're willing to pay up to $300 for them and you go out and shop and you find the pair that you normally would want that retails for like $350 is on sale for like $100 for some reason. There's this massive sale on the boot that you wanted and you could get the last pair and go away with it. Well, that would be the kind of product that would lead to a lot of satisfaction. You had a really high willingness to pay. You had a desire for this product. Uh, Normally, the price was higher than your willingness to pay. You weren't able to afford it. And all of a sudden, you could buy this product that you were dreaming about. 
and at a price much inferior to what you're willing to pay. So that leads to a lot of satisfaction, that consumer surplus. Well, you could think of, on the other hand, the same kind of boot, was instead of being 350, you see it on sale for like 275. Well, in that situation, since you had a willingness to pay up to $300 for this product and it's below it and you need boots and this is the product that you want, you'd still get some satisfaction, but you wouldn't be as stoked about it. You wouldn't be kind of telling your friends like, hey, guess what? Those boots I was dreaming about, I got them for like 275. Nah, but if you get them for $100, $125, $150, then you're going to be very satisfied and you'll be telling people about it. So once you strike what we call a deal, a bargain, is when you have a lot of satisfaction. And what is a deal or a bargain? Well, that's all relative. Everything in our life is relative to how much we value it. But a deal or a bargain or something that leads to a lot of satisfaction is something that you pay for a price that is substantially inferior to your willingness to pay. And up to your willingness to pay, by definition, the willingness to pay determines how much you are willing to pay. So what's the maximum you would pay for this product? If you go beyond it, you wouldn't buy it. If there's something that you're like, well, I like the idea of this product, this intelligent uh, dimmer switch for my house, but I'm only willing to pay up to a certain amount. Well, if the price becomes higher than that, you'll just go like, oh, not interested. Like, it's just too expensive. I like the idea how I'm behind it, but I, I just don't see the value. So that's the kind of idea here. So it's really based on the kind of implicit gain that you make from it. So what is required to calculate that surplus on that specific product? Well, it's how much you're willing to pay for that specific product and how much you actually paid. And the difference between the two is your consumer surplus for the purchase of that specific product. So giving you guys a few hints on where some people may make mistakes on multiple choice type questions, is sometimes you might have a question that says, well, um, you have a pair of shoes uh, that you're willing to pay this amount uh, if they were new, and this amount if they're used, and in the end, uh, you buy them at this price used or whatever. Well, what you always have to need to make sure of when you answer one of those questions that will ask you what's the surplus on that product is that you're comparing the willingness to pay and the price paid for a specific product, okay? So if we think about cars or whatever else, well, if I say, well, what's your surplus of buying a year 2010 Subaru Outback for $5,000. Well, if you say, well, the price of a new Subaru Outback is 40-ish thousand dollars, well, I made a surplus of 35. Well, no, that's not the case. Like you're not making the same value. You don't value this old vehicle the same way that you would value a brand new vehicle. So you have to ask yourself, well, what's your willingness to pay for this specific vehicle? So naturally used, you won't want to pay as much as for brand new. So you need willingness to pay and price for whatever you're buying. And naturally in society, we all have different willingnesses to pay. And that's why if we look at the demand curve, it's downward sloping for one reason, because 
if we think of being one individual eating, let's say, pizza slices, well, diminishing returns means that that second pizza slice will not give us as much satisfaction as the first one and the third one and so on. The 12th pizza slice won't give as much satisfaction as the first one. You're pretty, you're more than full probably by then. And it's just going to make you feel bad. So you have a situation where diminishing returns lead to this downward sloping demand curve. But there's also the concept that some people simply have higher willingness to pay. So if you think about releasing a new phone or computer, well, if you if they decide to charge like 3000 for it, there's very few of you that would probably buy the product. Uh, but there would be some people that would because their willingness to pay is much superior because they have a lot of disposable income and a lot of desire to be one of the first to obtain this product. Uh, but as the price goes down, there's more people that consume. So when we think about surplus, it's all dependent on people's own willingness to pay and the price paid of those individuals. So I looked at the example of a one product situation. You should be able to calculate that. But if I think graphically, what represents consumer surplus? Well, if I think graphically, normally a product has a single price. Like you don't have, uh, you don't go to the, the store and if you buy one bag of pasta, you pay this price. And if you buy two, you pay more. And if you buy three, you pay more and so on and so forth. You may pay less, there might be discounts, but let's just keep it simple and say, this is the market price and this is your demand curve and your willingness to pay. So there is, based on supply and demand, there is one price and the area behind, between that price and the demand curve, which represents the willingness to pay for all different quantity levels, is going to represent your consumer surplus for the amount of goods exchange. So this is important to know it. It's not necessarily all the way to the intersection point. We'll see when we start introducing price controls or talk about like quotas or talk about taxation. You may not have the full equilibrium free market equilibrium quantity exchanged so that's the situation that we have so it's abstract in the sense that when you go to make a purchase and you buy like a product and you pay a certain amount which is less than your willingness to pay you don't see on your receipt you paid $60, your willingness to pay was $100. Today, you got $40 worth of satisfaction. No, you don't see that. However, you know that how you feel inside, you feel really satisfied or not about this purchase. So for some reason, the government were to increase the price of electricity and the price of uh, other goods that we need uh, or increase the tax on different products such as gasoline and everything else, well, they know it's gonna have an impact potentially on some businesses and their profits, but they always have to keep in mind also the impact on consumers and our happiness. Because part of the way we feel in society and so on is based on that happiness level that we get from consuming. A second part we have to understand in this class here is a concept of producer surplus, which could also be seen as profits. And if ever I ask, how do you calculate profits? Well, profits will always be how much you make up in revenue, you add up all the revenue, 
and then you take away all the costs and what is left is your profits it's your producer surplus and in terms of those costs you could think of your time costs if you're thinking about economic wise like economic profits that's a detail uh, that's been covered and will be covered a little bit more but overall it's this idea of total revenue minus total costs is equal to your profits well if we think about the supply curve the way it's constructed it's it tells us the relationship between price and quantity supplied, but it also tells us in the same way that willingness to pay tells us the threshold max price that could be charged to consume X amount of quantity. Well, this quantity supplied and price relationship also exists with the supply curve, which pretty much tells us that if you pay me less than this price, I will not supply this quantity. I might supply a less, but it's the threshold price that you need to pay to be able for me to be incentive, uh, for me to have the incentive to supply, let's say, 100 units. <clears throat> so this is the situation that we have. So if we think of that supply curve, it mimics production costs. And we'll talk more about this when we get later on in the chapters and we look at marginal cost production. We'll say how it's linked to the supply curve, but they're linked. So if I think about that, if I were to look at the graph and I see the upward sloping supply curve, well, all of the area below the supply curve represents my production costs. And as the supply curve goes upward sloping, let's say I go to that intersection point with demand, well, all of that area below represents my total production costs. How do you compute total revenue? Well, it's pretty straightforward when you only have one item, and this is what we often assume when we have this simple graph that represents price and quantity for one specific good. Well, if I were to ask you, if you don't forget how to calculate total revenue, well, if you're working at Subway when they're, you're, you're selling cookies uh, out in the quad, well, how much revenue did you make? Well, the two pieces of information that you need to have to calculate your total revenue is you, you have to tell me how many cookies you sold and at what price. That's all I need to know. So if there's only one type of cookie and only one price, it's pretty straightforward. You tell me I sold 100 cookies at $3 each, you made $300 of revenue today. So that is how I calculate total revenue. If I look at this graphically, well, if I think about my equilibrium price and my equilibrium quantity in the absence of like distortions such as price controls, which we'll see later, well, we have this vertical axis is my price, my horizontal axis is my quantity. So if I multiply that quantity, because both of them start from zero, that distance, and that vertical distance, well, I get a rectangle in a certain way. So if I multiply five times 100, well, I get 500. Well, it's the same thing as computing the area of a rectangle that is five in height and 100 in width. Five times 100 is 500. So if I think about that and I look at it graphically, that whole area that goes from the origin all the way to the intersection point, which is like goes all the way up to the equilibrium price and all the way to the right to the quantity. That rectangle that you can draw out is your total revenue. Total revenue minus total cost, which is all the area below the supply curve leads to profits. So what is remaining there is producer surplus. So producer surplus is the area above the supply curve below the price it's the extra amount of money I make on each of those units for the quantity exchange. So once again, if that quantity exchange gets limited for various reasons, 
you will have to stop where the quantity exchange stops. But for the quantity that is sold, it's any area to the left. That represents my producer surplus. So in a simple-ish world, we only look at producer surplus and consumer surplus as the determinants of social welfare or total economic surplus or util or uh, or just happiness of the society because we're looking at not only the consumer but the producer which is owned by humans and so on so we want to make sure to maximize that as much as possible and it's through the free market equilibrium that that whole area those two triangles together that's added up that will be maximized this as i mentioned is a simplification of reality to this point because we have no taxes which lead to tax revenue which leads to another area which could be good for society because it leads to services provided by government and there hasn't been a discussion on environmental damages and how we want to minimize those environmental damages so when we put those concepts aside we're only focusing on producer surplus and so and uh, consumer surplus to determine social welfare at this point that's pretty much the whole idea here it's trying to determine what these areas represent where they are um, and then trying to determine whether satisfactions go up or down and uh, we'll see later on if you understand this baseline well it's going to be required to understand the concept that we will cover in the future that refers to debt weight loss and the debt weight loss will be the loss of economic surplus caused by a distortion to the free market equilibrium and that distortion could be a quota it could be a price control it could be a tax as soon as you introduce one of those we'll see if i just talk about the example of a tax which will come further down whereas price control is the next audio segment that you'll listen to well, with the tax, if you introduce a tax, it creates a distortion between the price received by the producer and the price paid by the consumer. Therefore, there's going to be less units sold. We'll see how that works. Because there's less units sold, the tax revenue can be good for society, but those last units, so let's say you used to sell 100 units and now you only sell 80, well, the surplus that was gained on those last 80 units no longer exists because even though people value it more than what it costs to produce, the cost of production plus the tax makes it more expensive than people's value. Therefore, they do not consume them. And that creates a loss to society in terms of there's less units available for consumers. So they're not gaining that. And the producers aren't producing as much. They're not gaining as much profits and producer surplus. And the last thing we have to understand is why don't we go beyond the free market quantity? Well, the reason why there wouldn't be any overproduction is if we think of that intersection curve between supply and demand, if we go to the right of the intersection point, well, the supply curve for that, for any of those quantities is above the demand curve. So the production cost on any of those units is greater than people's willingness to pay for those units. So it doesn't make any sense, regardless of what price it's charged to produce those units, because it will cost the businesses more money to produce them than people value them. So there is no way that uh, they can gain. They, they can't charge their production costs. People wouldn't buy it. And if they sell it at people's willingness to pay, 
consumers will not gain that much and businesses will lose profit. So it doesn't make any sense. So that's why we stop at the intersection point. So hopefully this whole chapter has been clear, the whole idea here. And then afterwards, when we talk about price controls, it's understanding the consumer, how they gain and uh, how they lose from different kind of outcomes. Uh, because later on, when we move to the chapters in the future, we're going to be looking more at uh, the situation from the producer's side and uh, different market structures. And we'll look at profits more and everything else. But we have to always keep in mind the impact on the consumer from various government decisions or business decisions that may occur. So hopefully that was uh, informative. If you have any questions, feel free to let me know. Otherwise, through the videos, you'll be able to see a little bit more visually and you'll understand what's required for you to, to do well in this segment. See you soon.